It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we could call this a high-risk uh, message, uh, not because the message itself is actually high-risk, but I, at the last minute, changed my message. This is a very bad thing to do when you're in a long series on World War I, but, and I would typically not do this, but I, I had this thought that if I don't get this particular message in at this exact juncture, then it will be lost, and it will not have any opportunity to stick back into the timeline. Uh, and it's at the end of 1916, and I was just about to go into a little uh, time in Russia. Uh, and I, we've, we've spent one other message in Russia in this series called the Nicholas Swizzle, and I was going to go back up and visit Nicholas II and the Russian Revolution, which is in 1917. And it's a critical event that is going to take place. You're going to have two revolutions in Russia in the year 1917. One is called the February Revolution. One's called the October Revolution. And the world in which we know is going to be defined. Uh, communism, the Soviet Union, all of that is taking place right at this exact juncture. It's all a result of World War I. And so before that unfolds, there is an event right at the end of, uh, of December 1916 going into January of 1917 that I wanted to inject in. So when I say this is a high-risk episode, I put this together literally uh, this morning. A very bad idea. I usually have my Monday Daily Thunder prepped at least by Friday. So this was a very uncomfortable morning for me. Uh, but at the same time, I'm excited. I, I like living uh, with sort of that uh, de dependence on the living God as I move forward, and that's definitely true about this message. So I have no idea when I go, I haven't, didn't even get a chance to review the keynote, and sometimes that could lead to some really funny things. Uh, part 34, a false peace. So we are uh, in a, a juncture of the war where... The stalemate seems impossible to break. Both sides have tried various tactics to sort of break the stalemate along, uh, especially the Western Front. And it, no one has a clear idea how they can end this war. And yet, all the countries in it are beginning to crumble. At the beginning of 1917, you're going to see nations fall because they cannot keep this pace of spending millions of men and billions of what would be the equivalent of billions of dollars. They are borrowing from America, typically, and so America is going to become the new financial center of the world by the end of uh, World War I because of the fact that they're playing a neutral role and they also can manufacture goods. So nations borrow from them and then nations buy with their borrowed dollars uh, American manufactured artillery and, and uh, armaments and things like that. So America's uh, really doing well uh, up to this point. They do not want to get involved in this conflict. And by the end of 1916, they still are not involved. Remember, this is going to start August 4th of 1914. And so America's done a pretty good job of staying out of this so far and making uh, their billions so part 34, a false peace. Uh, there is a peace 
attempt by uh, our president, Woodrow Wilson. He is trying to arbiter uh, the Great Peace Treaty that will make him famous throughout history. And the fact that most of you don't know about Woodrow Wilson shows you that he probably didn't pull it off. And the fact that America, if you know the, the story of the war, America's actually going to get involved in the war, let alone not uh, work a peace deal. So Jeremiah 6.14 talks about sort of what we're going to see in this message. They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Now what's interesting about this message and the reason that I wanted to uh, sort of land on it is there's something in this that I feel is important for the individual spiritual life. And that is this idea of the enemy's negotiating tactics. I'm gonna share with you at the end of this message two different stories in my life that some of you may have heard, but where the enemy came to the negotiating table to actually negotiate a certain form of peace with me. I know that that sounds totally bizarre, and I was not coming to the table to talk to him. I'm just saying, this is very real, where the enemy can lay a deal in front of us, and I just want you to know from the very beginning, he's a liar, okay? Do not trust him. Uh, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So there's our president, uh, and he's our president through the entirety of World War I. What a unique situation Woodrow Wilson is going to be in. He is a pacifist. I've mentioned this in previous episodes. He doesn't come from the political side of things. He comes from the educational side. So he comes out of the collegiate system, and he's a, a brainiac. The guy is a very, very smart man. And that is actually his great weakness, too, because he thinks he's smarter than everyone in the room. And so anyone's opinion or counsel that comes to him, he's very smug about it. It's sort of like, well, <clears throat> thank you for sharing your ridiculous ideas, but I'll keep my own. And so he doesn't take counsel. And as a result, he lives inside of his own little bubble, where to him, this is the smartest idea. And you have to admit, in hindsight, when you look at his proposals, yeah, if... If everyone could heed those proposals, yeah, we would have peace on earth. However, that isn't how peace is gained. And so he's going to sort of be living in his own little bubble, and he's starting to lose touch with America as well, not just with the European conflict with Mexico, but uh, he's definitely struggling in his presidency at this time. And then we have Kaiser Wilhelm II, who we've been calling William. However, I haven't had a good message on uh, Kaiser William in a while, so I haven't been able to use his, his name William very often. Uh, so, and a lot of these guys have mustaches. It's interesting that Woodrow Wilson doesn't have a mustache. Isn't that just a fascinating uh, thought? Because almost everyone in this time period has a mustache. And of course, Kaiser Wilhelm, or William, has a doozy of one. <laughs> so these two are on opposite ends of the spectrum, and we've been sort of pitting them against each other throughout this because even though America is considered a neutral uh, nation at this point in the war, Germany has been anything but neutral towards the United States, and they have been doing whatever they can to manipulate Wilson and the Americans into being distracted with Mexico. And so I've, I've gone through multiple uh, messages on that, which is an incredible parallel with our lives. 
that there is a key battle that we're supposed to be engaged in. There's a calling that we all have, but we have these skirmishes along the Mexican border that are constantly drawing our best attentions. And it can be very, very frustrating when you begin to see that. And this guy is the one responsible for it. In other words, he is purposely going out of his way to try and keep America out of the war. And he knows that Wilson is a pacifist, so he's listening to all peace negotiations. He's like, keep talking, Wilson, keep talking. And he's acting like he's interested in negotiating peace. When in actuality, this guy has no interest whatsoever in anything but winning this war. And if there were going to be peace terms, peace terms that were advantageous to the Germans are that the Germans keep all the territory that they've conquered and that the Allies will pay them back for losses. It's like, uh, I don't think the Allies are going to agree to that. Oh, well, that's the sort of peace that we would need. And so both sides are sort of saying the same thing, where it's just like, there's no way you're going to get peace out of these guys. They've spent millions of lives, millions of men, to do what they've done so far, and you're asking them to forget that and to go back to their country and say, yeah, we just decided that all of those lives that we spent were for nothing. And so as a result, Wilson, in his high-mindedness on the other side of the Atlantic, has these great notions of peace, but the parties involved cannot see through the lens of anything but vengeance. So we're right at a key time uh, in this war where the U-boat, which is what we know as a submarine, is once again becoming a very, very critical thing. You see, the Germans have U-boats, and they have a lot of U-boats. In fact, throughout the war, they've been building more U-boats. And they have a weapon that they know that they can unleash in the Atlantic, and they can stop all British shipping. And if they could stop all British shipping, that means Great Britain is going to run out of food, they're going to run out of ammunition. They're going to run out of everything that would keep them a solid nation, which will undermine them and they will collapse. France is about to collapse already. So the Germans know that if they unleash these U-boats in a way that is actually illegal. You see, it's funny, when you talk about war, you, why, why legalities have anything to do with it, but the, the Hague Convention has declared that for a U-boat or a submarine, to actually attack a ship, especially any, any kind of ship, but a merchant ship uh, specifically, in other words, one that is not actually a combatant, that they have to announce themselves first. They have to come above the surface and they need to declare that they are there. It's like, hey, we are about to shoot you. And that's how the Hague Convention describes it. Now, the Germans are just like beside themselves with how dumb that is. Because what is the good of having a U-boat in its, in its stealth and its secrecy if you have to come above the water and declare it? So you could say, why aren't they doing it already? Because they could stop. They've done a whole bunch of illegal things already. Why aren't they doing this? Because Wilson, Woodrow Wilson has declared, if you do this to merchant ships, that we will enter the war. So that's been a pretty good motivator for the Germans to not use their U-boats. However, that's their secret strength, and everyone in Germany knows it. However, the German ambassador to America knows that, you know, Wilson is sort of a weird character, yes, but I do think he will attack and he will join the Allies if you do that. I mean, this guy, yeah, I know he's a little strange and he's a pacifist and he doesn't want to be in, in this war at all, 
But if you do that, I do think he will enter this war. The Germans are going to have to make this decision. I don't know that I want to give anything away, but they are going to unleash the U-boats. Did I just give that away? Oh, they are going to, this is all part of what is coming up, which is called the Zimmerman telegram. Okay, all of this is going to happen at the very beginning of 1917, and it's a very, very significant event. And so these U-boats are what the Germans know they need if they're going to win this war. They have to use their U-boats. But if they use their U-boats, the Americans are going to come in. Now, the Americans don't want them to use their U-boats because they don't want to have to come into the war. So as a result, they want to negotiate a peace before the Germans use their U-boats. Isn't this a funny situation? Wilson's peace plan. So he is proposing something that is historically known as a peace without victory. That is what he wants the Allies to understand and to absorb, that they're, they're going to have a peace but there's no victory in this peace. You cannot claim victory. Germans, you need to have a victory, you know, you need to have a peace, but there's no victory. You can't claim victory. So both sides just need to say, all right, that was a mistake. What we did was wrong. We shouldn't have done it. Now let's just return home. That's what his proposal is, okay? And you could just imagine how the other nations are thinking about this. So in the Zimmerman telegram by Barbara Tuckman, she says this. Wilson felt obliged to be, or at least to act, impartial if he was to have any chance of getting both sides to listen to him. He was convinced that only a negotiated peace could endure, that a dictated peace forced upon the loser would be accepted, this is a quote from, uh, from Wilson himself, would be accepted in humiliation under duress at an, intolerable, at an intolerable sacrifice and would leave a sting, a resentment, a bitter memory upon which the terms of peace would rest, not permanently, but only as upon quicksand. Only a peace between equals can last, a peace without victory. So what's interesting is that quote is going to prove prophetic because the end of World War I, which I'm not giving away right now, the end of World War I is going to have a peace where one side is going to be humiliated. And that is going to lead to World War II. So what he is saying right there is actually true. It's a peace that is standing on quicksand because it's not a peace among equals. It was a peace with one being superior and one being under their boot and grinding them in with malice, okay? The end of World War I is not a pleasant thing. In other words, it's peace, but it, there's no peace. This was the wisdom that made him great, speaking of Wilson. But it was a long-distance wisdom that ignored realities underfoot. The combatants were in no mood for it. Shivering in trenches in blood and mud and stench, they resented advice from a man in a far-off white mansion. It's like, who is this president of the United States that has no idea what we're going through over here to make these statements over there that we should just walk away from this battle? And we should just all go home and sign some peace paper that says, we're fine now. We love you, oh Germany. Or in Germany, supposed to say, we love you, oh France, even though you killed millions of our men. In other words, how do you walk through this in a way that is realistic? The facts would have forced themselves upon anyone but Wilson. But the armor of fixed purpose he wore was impenetrable. He chose two main principles, neutrality for America, negotiated peace for Europe as the fixed points of his policy and would allow no realities to interfere with them. 
Although no two men in any one period of history were more unlike, Wilson shared one characteristic with the Kaiser. Remember Will, William? Yeah. The guy with the mustache? He would not listen to opinions he did not welcome. That's the one quality that is similar between both of them. They will not listen to opinions that they did not welcome. William was afraid of them, but Wilson considered opinions which opposed him as simply a waste of time. Intent upon saving Europe, he ignored the mood of the Europeans. Just as he was determined to confer democracy upon Mexicans, ready or not, he was determined to confer peace upon Europeans, willing or not. Sorry about the punctuation in that. He had no idea how like condescension his attitude appeared to them. He listened to himself rather than to them. So one of the previous messages we had was on Wilson's relationship with the Mexicans. This is going back you know, quite a long time. Uh, I think it's called the meddling of William. It could have been the 21-gun salute. Both of them are going to deal with it. And Wilson felt it was his position as president of the United States to instruct Mexico in how they should run their government. And so he took it upon himself to correct them in their governmental proceedings and to replace their current president with someone different. It, yeah, some of you were even shocked in hearing this. That's exactly what happened. And it led to a lot of problems. So Wilson is very high-minded. He's, you know, in long, if you look at it in any grand perspective, you could say he's probably even right. The Mexican form of government was disastrous. I mean, if you can survive more than one year as the president of the country, you're a pretty uh, hardy character because you're likely going to get assassinated, right? So, I mean, you can admit that Wilson has seen something that is incorrect, but it's not his position as president of the United States to meddle in Mexican affairs. That's actually not his jurisdiction. He needs to mind his own business called America. And where America and Mexico interrelate, yes, that is his voice. But this is a similar thing that he's doing in Europe now, where he's meddling. And this is what, I mean, this is what William is doing with us. William from Germany is meddling in our situations, but Wilson is meddling in everyone else's as well, but his is for a different purpose. William is doing it so he can win a war. Wilson is doing it so he can stay out of a war. Isn't that an interesting motivation? He's a, remember, I just let me remind you, he's a pacifist in a time of war, and he doesn't want to participate in this. Part of his great burden of soul is that he doesn't take his nation in to a war. So speaking of Wilson, he seemed unaware that two and a half years of fighting a war that was taking the best lives of nations had welded the combatants into a frame of mind in which compromise was impossible. He refused to recognize that each side by now wanted tangible gains to show that the pain and cost had been worthwhile. When Wilson fails, the Germans have a peace plan of their own. Now, this is part of the reason I'm building this, is there is going to be a, a peace plan, a German peace plan that is going to be proposed early of January 1917. And you could say, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Germans are proposing a peace plan? That's what the rest of the world was saying too. Wait a minute, the ones that started the war are actually saying that they would like to end the war? This is interesting. And it's okay if you raise an eyebrow on this one and, and actually give a quizzical gaze back. 
Germans, are you sure that uh, this is real? The Germans wanted to hear no more of the long-awaited peace offer from Mr. Wilson, who they were now convinced was deliberately procrastinating in the interests of the Allies. By now it was clear enough to them that no peace he could arrange would be acceptable to them. The only peace that the Allies would accept, a peace of renunciation and indemnity by the Germans, would mean the end of the Hohenzollerns. So that's the ruling part. That's, that's like William II is from this line. This is their royal line. And it would be the end of them and the governing class. So basically, all those that ruled Germany would have to step aside and abdicate their ruling position. It's the only type of uh, peace that the Allies would accept. They had to make someone else pay for the war. Speaking, this is the Germans speaking. Oh, uh, the conquest was necessary to them. They had to make someone else pay for the war or go bankrupt. So they had spent their entire nation on this war, the Germans had. And they had the, uh, the turnip uh, winter, which meant they had no food, and people are literally you know, digging up their turnips uh, and doing whatever they can to survive, eating you know, whatever they can to that could possibly be digestible. And they have nothing left. And so they need to win this war to make someone else, another nation, pay for it, which is a typical thing to do. If, if someone else is the aggressor, you win the war, then you pay for the war by making them pay for it. It's actually a pretty cool concept as long as you're the winner. But if you don't come out the victor, just imagine how upside down this can be. A compromise peace bringing no aggrandizement, in other words, none of that uh, benefit financially to them, to Germany would require enormous taxes after the war to pay for years of fighting that had proven profitless. It would mean revolution, which is exactly what's happening in Russia in this upcoming year. So listen to Ludendorff, Eric Ludendorff, and if you haven't been introduced to Eric Ludendorff, that's not the name Eric Ludi, it's Eric Ludendorff. Uh, I have a message called The Other Eric, and it's really weird because my, my mom's maiden name is Obendorf, and my dad's name is Ludi, so if you were to put those together, you would get Ludendorff. And this guy is a bad dude, okay? This is one of the, I mean, I'm going to go into Ludendorff in this, it might be in the next two weeks, but uh, he'll be somewhere in there because he's going to play a very big part. He's now basically coming into a position of taking over the military, which is now a military government. So he's going to be over Germany in the upcoming uh, months uh, here. And so this is what Ludendorff uh, had to say. The German people wish no peace of renunciation. And I do not intend to end being pelted by stones. The dynasty would never survive such a peace. And Barbara Tuckman says this, For the sake of world opinion, as well as to eliminate Mr. Wilson as mediator, they now determined upon a dramatic gesture, gesture of their own. The Reichstag was suddenly convened for December 12th of 1916. No one knew why. Berlin buzzed with speculation. On the 12th, all the neutral diplomats were summoned to the chancellor's office to which they were admitted one by one. So when the Swiss minister is going to walk out, on his way out, he whispers, peace offer. And all the other neutral diplomats are there going, peace offer. Germany's offering peace. You know, they're trying to wrap their brain around this. The startling news that the central powers, so Germany is uh, the head of the central powers. Austria, Hungary is like falling to pieces. Turkey is falling to pieces. So really all that's left is Germany, but it's still they're part of the central powers. 
The startling news that the central powers were proposing peace was somewhat dampened by their carelessness in omitting to mention terms. The offer was, of course, designed to fail, as its phraseology made certain. In other words, what we have, fitting the title of this message, is a false peace. In other words, they want to appear that they are offering peace so that when they release the U-boats, it's understood that, hey, we did our best to offer peace, but you rejected it. And so that in the end, their goal is that in the end, they would look not like the aggressor, but as the one who had to defend themselves. Even though they are the aggressor, they want to now flip the storyline. The Germans just are not very good at flipping the storyline. For whatever reason, their PR department stinks. I don't know why that is, but all throughout World War I and World War II, everyone in the world doesn't like the Germans. You know, as they're going through this, it's like, these guys are mean. And the Germans seem to even like that. It's like, oh, you think we're mean. Well, good, that's what we were after. And because they want everyone to be terrified by them, and they don't recognize that public opinion polls around the world don't really take to the mean attitude, right? The one that is rescuing you know, the, the, the person who is weak. Now, that translates well around the world. However, the Germans and their violence and their and intimidating techniques doesn't translate well. And their peace offer is not going to translate well, by the way. All that they were thinking it would do, it sort of backfired. So this is their peace deal. It opened with a harangue upon Germany's invincible power and closed with the threat that if it was rejected, Germany would carry on the war to a victorious conclusion, but would solemnly decline all responsibility, therefore before humanity and history. Explaining the offer to his troops, the Kaiser tactfully added that he was proposing to negotiate with the enemy in the conviction that we are the absolute conquerors. He couldn't help the German swagger from showing through the dove's clothing. So here they are, acting like the doves and offering peace. Meanwhile, they have a whole entire attitude of you know, Germany's invincible power, and then they close, that, that should have been a finished quotation there. And then they finished with the threat that if it was rejected, Germany would carry on the war to a victorious conclusion, but would solemnly decline all responsibility, therefore, before humanity and history for doing so. In other words, we won't be responsible for the war if you decline this peace. Well, this is a bunch of bunk, guys. They have no intention of peace. They have intention, even at this exact point in history, you can even study it in their, their, their communications, they have every intention of releasing the U-boats. They have no intention of peace. They know that what they are submitting to the allies, the allies will refuse. However, they want to clear their name. It's like, hey, we were made to do this. We didn't want to do this, but we had to. The offer of a false peace. Now, you'll, you'll see the dates on this don't sound like World War I, and that's because it's not. It's in the life of Eric Ludi. And I would like to at least let you know that I understand this dynamic in a very, very intimate and personal way in my life that there, are, there is a battle and that we are engaged in spiritually, but our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against uh, spiritual powers. And... In this engagement, many of us are unfamiliar with this terrain. And so when we have resistance by the enemy, we don't always recognize it as spiritual resistance. 
we look at it as you know just frustration. You know, the, the, why do these bad things happen? Why is it so difficult to do this? Instead of recognizing that you have a target on your head, the moment you sign up uh, to follow Jesus Christ, you are suddenly a threat. And the enemy will oppose that. And his design is to oppose things at first movements. It's easier to stop something when it's first starting than it is to stop it once it has momentum. It does not mean he will give up on you if you get momentum. It just means he will put his best energies towards stopping you before you can get going. And that's just a principle of how things work in the spiritual life. And so when you first are starting something, so I could almost say it this way, welcome to Ellerslie. When you are first starting something, you're going to get more flack and more challenge and more uh, cloud than you do as you progress. And it doesn't mean there won't be seasons of cloud and seasons of resistance, but the beginning is oftentimes the most challenging. When Leslie and I started in ministry, and then I could create a parallel when we started Ellerslie, something very similar happened, even though it was very different in its circumstances, but we received a tremendous assault upon our life. And at first, I didn't even, like when we started our ministry just as a, as a whole, way back, what, what did I say, spring of 1997, that's not when we started. We actually started in, what was it, fall of 1995, I think would have been our first event. And so in these first couple of years, uh, it was a little bit like World War I, and it was a bit of chaos in our life. And I remember having the thought, God, all I'm trying to do is serve you and speak truth. I would have expected it to actually be a lot easier. I mean, doesn't it seem like if you were serving God and you came up to someone with the truth that they should, and they need the truth, that they should be like patting you on the back and going, thank you for giving me that truth. This is so important to me. I'm like, yeah, you see, that's why I did it. I love you. I care about you because Jesus cares about me. I had this all in my mind. It was very romanticized of how it was going to work. And I wasn't acquainted with historic Christianity. I wasn't acquainted with the way that it has always worked, that men like me that believe what I believe end up getting fed to lions. That wasn't in my grid yet. And so I had to sort of understand that and begin to build the historical understanding of Christianity and even what Paul teaches about suffering and difficulty. And then I'm supposed to rejoice when I face trials of many kinds. But at this point, I was still struggling with that and as a result, the devil was playing upon my ignorance. It was like, ah, oh boy, why is it so hard for you, Eric? You could just sort of, if you were following me around and you see, hear the enemy talking to me, I mean, you would be yelling at me saying, don't listen to him. However, when you don't know it's the enemy and you think it's your own thoughts, you're very dupable. You're very easily moved. And so there I was, it's like, man, this is so hard. This shouldn't be so hard. And here's the enemy going, this is so hard. This shouldn't be so hard for you. And I'm like, well, I'm agreeing. I'm even mouthing the same words. And I couldn't figure out why I had such antagonism towards me. Don't these people realize that I'm just trying to do something good for them? I'm trying to just share my heart and my passion. All these people over here in the secular community, when they share their passions, everyone applauds. Why is it when I share my passion for Jesus Christ, everyone boos? What is the deal here? I didn't understand the nature of the battle. 
And so there we were, and you know, it's not that I was ignorant of it in, in total, but I was still sort of filling in some huge gaps of understanding at this time. So what I'm saying is spring 1997, technically, I don't know what time of year it was, but I, I wanted to put something other than, up there other than uh, 1997, right? So it's sometime in that year. And I remember I felt like the devil issued a deal. He submitted a deal to me. And you could say, what were you doing talking with the devil? I wasn't talking. It just came across my desk one day. And I don't know how to describe it, but I understood exactly what it meant. And I understood what the terms were. And it was something like this. Let this message go, and I'll let you go. Everywhere we traveled, Leslie was sick. Every time we got on a plane, Leslie would get sick. I was so sick and tired of ministry. I was so sick and tired of this battle. I just wanted to see straight again. I was tired of the noise. I was tired of everyone now, no one liking me anymore. I used to, I was homecoming king in high school. I was homecoming king in college. People liked me before I became weird. Now all I'm trying to do is love people, serve people, and share Jesus with people, and all hell breaks loose in my life. Tired of this. All right, you see Eric's fallen for something here? I was ripe for the picking. And the enemy comes in with his little deal. Because what we're saying and what we're speaking, I still agree with. Which is interesting to see these holes in my overall understanding of how Christianity works. But at the same time, what I was representing was give your life wholly to Jesus Christ and he'll care for you. Your love life belongs to him. That's what we were talking about at the time. And so submit it to him. Let go of it. Give it to him. Let him write your story. Still agree with that. And yet, in the midst of it, I was so sick of the difficulty that came with it because I didn't know how to rejoice in difficulty. I didn't know how to consider it pure joy, so it was pure irritation. It was pure frustration. And if I wasn't doing this, my wife wouldn't be sick all the time. There's something about what we're doing that is hindering my wife's health. And I, if I'm gonna be a protector, I need to do something about this. And I felt like the devil just sends it right across my desk. You give up this message and I'll let go of you. It's like, yeah, that's the problem. It's like the devil is like all over this. And, and I, I, I'm sick and tired of that. And so we set up a time with Leslie's parents where we were going to make it clear our decision. And so I think in hindsight that they probably thought we were announcing that we were pregnant. Uh, but I didn't think of that at the time. I was so serious, right? And so they're like, oh, absolutely. And they're sitting there all excited. And, you know, because I, I probably said, yeah, we have an announcement to make. It's like, what was I thinking? Uh, but we were, I mean, I was very serious as I came into the room and we sat down and, and they're, they're leaning forward with expectancy. And this is what I say. Uh, Leslie and I are, uh, are, are giving up this ministry. And they're like, what? What, what are you talking about? Why? Well, uh, I feel like it's been clear that, I don't know how I said it, but like the devil has made it clear that if I'll just give this up, he'll let me go. And I just, I just can't keep going like this. I can't keep fighting this. I am so tired of it. Tired of what it's doing to Leslie and her health. I'm just tired of the constant abrasion in my life. And key moment in my life right here. Janet, Leslie's mom, 
leans forward, and she says, he's lying to you. You know too much, and he will not stop until he kills you. That was what I needed to hear. <laughs> Suddenly, I stand up and make fists. <laughs> we are not stopping. I went from literally the ultimate pushover to suddenly just a key. Once I knew that he was a liar and that he was out to destroy me and this was a false peace, it actually cleared the air for my soul. I needed to know the truth afresh that my God has commissioned me and the enemy wants to stop me. That's a compliment. So take it as a compliment, O church of Jesus Christ, instead of mumbling and groaning and complaining over the challenge, recognize that he's scared to death that you'll get your game on. He doesn't want you to live this fully for Jesus, and he's doing everything he can to stop the momentum from beginning. And it's interesting because I could testify of those, I don't know how many years it was, first 12 years or so of our ministry where we were traveling the world, the very beginning was so difficult, so difficult to get started. Once I got started, I'm not going to say it got easy. That would be a, a misstatement. However, he couldn't stop us. I was very easy to stop in the beginning is the way I would almost want to describe it. It's like pathetically easy. Looking back, I'm just humiliated by how ridiculous I was thinking back then. However, I do understand how the culture we've been groomed in, Christian, Christianity-wise, and how susceptible we are to groaning and grumbling and complaining instead of rejoicing and leaping for joy and triumphing in our challenges. And so as a result, God taught me something in and through that. And I've always recognized that the beginnings of anything come with a tremendous resistance. And what you're going to see in 1917, I don't want to give anything away, I'm trying not to at least, is you're going to see the beginnings of all sorts of things. And one of them, this is sort of a hint hint, but don't, you know, just act like you don't hear it, okay? America is going to wake up. And they're going to recognize that they've been lied to. And suddenly, Wilson, the pacifist, is going to declare war. In other words, what you see is a similar momentum. Once he realizes that all of this is lies and they're just trying to drag this out, saying, oh, no, no, we're interested in peace, we're interested in peace, we're interested in peace. No, they're not. They're interested in keeping Wilson busy. So he's doing anything but involving himself in this war. And the same is true in our lives. The offer of a false peace, January of 2011. That's not that long ago. And this is an Eric Ludy story. This isn't a World War I story. So Ellerslie is going to start, uh, what was it, fall of 2009 is when we're going to get this campus. And then we're going to launch, I think it was May of 2010. Is that accurate? Uh, May of 2010? Or is it June 1st or May, the end of May? Uh, and that's when our first uh, semester is going to come in. Whew, what a season of my life. This is, you know, I, I thought it was like all-out war when I was starting, you know, just ministry in general. This is like a whole new level. Leslie and I are traveling around the world at this time, speaking to tens of thousands of people. You would think if the devil was, you know, going to be concerned about something, it would be that. 
And yet when we come off the road to just do this, for this little diddly squat group of people, right? It should be something where he's like giving a standing ovation and helping, right? But there is something about what we do here that he doesn't like. And the reason I have a confidence in saying that is because of how much resistance has come our way when we made this shift. It's sort of like a dead giveaway. And there were so many times in the beginning, my, we always usually have an escape hatch or a lifeboat on, the, on our life. And I had you know, multiple invitations to other places in the world. I've had you know, multiple pastoral positions that have been offered me. And sometimes you just sort of hold those in your satchel, sort of like, well, if this goes south, then. And I was sort of nursing this idea of moving to New Zealand at the time. It was like someone had said something like, hey, you could set this up in New Zealand. And it's like, hey, we have this facility. You know, these various things that go through your mind. And I'm just like, you know, looking at the map, but it's like, New Zealand. You know, look at a picture online, New Zealand. Whoa, does that look nice? You know, The Hobbit comes out, or Lord of the Rings comes out. Oh, boy, that looks nice. And I want ease, just like you do. And yet, you are not actually designed for ease. Ease kills. It's not ease that we were designed for. It's the glory of God that we were designed for. And I don't want to just say we're designed for conflict. We are designed to endure conflict. It's not that we're designed to just enjoy it always. It's just that we're designed to win. We're designed to be victorious in these bodies, in this world, because we're filled with the life of God. And as a result, in this engagement, it can wear you down if you start to think the wrong thoughts or meditate upon the wrong things instead of recognizing that God has given you sufficiency to endure what you're going through. And all hell started coming at Eric and Leslie Ludi, which I don't want to go into. That's not the point of this message. But that first year of Ellerslie was, up to that point, easily the hardest year of my life. And there's so many little micro stories in that year. And for us to get even that first semester up and going on this campus, whew, what a, what a challenge that was. And then the second semester, and so we'd finished up two semesters. And I now I'm in January, and we're just about to start our third semester. We, had a, a, we originally were just going to have a, a summer semester, and it was just filled. So then we opened up a fall semester, which was a big thing, because Leslie and I, our plan was that we were going to have a summer semester, and then we were going to take our family and travel around the world and help with orphanages. And it was actually a tactical maneuver we were doing for our kids too, not just uh, for us, but we wanted our kids growing up with that uh, mentality. And then we have our fall semester fills up, and I still remember I was the last person on our team to vote in agreement for a winter-spring semester. It's like the moment I say that, that's like what we're doing all year long is training. And yep, that's exactly what we've done all year round for years was training. And so here we are in January of that year, and in a strange way, I have a deal float across my desk. And I don't know how to describe this, but I could even give the tone of voice the enemy had. And it's not because I'm looking to have a conversation with this devil. It's just that he is a talker. And he's yammering a lot. And I could even give you a tone of voice. So it's sort of like this. Well done. Well done, Ludie. You beat me. 
All right, I'm going to admit it. You beat me. You got this whole Ellerslie thing started. Good for you. Good for you. However, you keep your little Ellerslie right where it's at. You don't move another step forward. You just take what you have and don't keep moving forward, and I'll leave you alone. However, you take one more step forward, and I'll bring all hell in to destroy you. It was like a very real threat, and I felt it. It's just like, mind your own business. Keep it where it's at. Don't take any more steps forward, and he'll leave me alone. And I know some of you are just trying to figure out how a discussion like this even works. I'm not having it. It's like being supplied to me. I like have it given to me. It's like, oh, I hear you. So I came to the staff and I sat down and I told them this. They were wondering the same thing. It's like, why, why were you talking with? It's like, I'm not talking with them. And so I lay it before them. And I say, so it seems like we have a deal here that if we just mind our own business and keep what we have right here, that he'll leave us alone. Or that if we take another step forward, he'll bring all hell against us. You know, and everyone's sort of looking at me like, what, what, what is this? Or, what are you thinking, Eric? I'll tell you what I'm thinking. We're moving forward. You see, what did I learn in the previous time? He's a liar. And if he's trying to negotiate a peace like this, it's because he doesn't want me engaged in the true battle. If greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world, why should I fear? He should fear the one called the Christian or the church in whom the greater dwells. He wants the greater to stop. He wants the greater to be distracted with skirmishes along their Mexican border. He is afraid of the forward movement. And so as a result, if you were to take my last uh, decade plus of time that I have walked through at Ellerslie, and you could say, so what happened? Well, all hell has come against us. And I say it with a smile, because God has proven victorious. Was it hard? Oh, yes. Most challenging things I've ever walked through have been in that little stretch of time. In my life, far greater than when we first started ministry, far greater than even the first year of Ellerslie. And yet, our God is faithful. And so when the devil tries to negotiate a false peace, just know he's scared of what you represent. He's scared of your forward movements. When you first start taking steps forward in a place like this, you can get a lot of noise in your life. And the devil will play on any opportunity, any opening he can find in your life to try and convince you that moving forward leads to challenge in your life. And this is where you have to push back. You have to rise up and you have to declare, I am not stopping. So here's the quote from January 2011. Don't take one more step forward and I'll let you be. So Wilson is going to propose a peace without victory. And it's obviously not going to go over very well. I, I mean, I, I like his concepts and, you know, Wilsonian diplomacy is what it's called. And basically, he's going to be the founder of what's called the League of Nations. And so he is going to, which is going to become the United Nations. He's going to be this guy that is interested in peace. He genuine, genuinely desires it. But in this situation, it's very interesting to see how he has played. But we as the church find ourselves in 
not an altogether different situation than the Western Front, a stalemate, where it seems impossible for, if you stare at the, at the landscape of World War I in 1916 going into 1917, there is no way there's going to be a European peace. No way. But if you go back 2,000 years from right now, and you look at our relationship with God as Gentiles, and you would say the same thing. There is no way that anyone can broker a peace deal here. We're at enmity with God Almighty. We are in sin. We're Gentiles. We're so far removed from the commonwealth of Israel. We don't know the words of truth. We are not close to being grafted in. And so peace, peace is uh, something that is impossible. And yet, every one of us that knows the gospel knows that God is, you could say prince of peace, but master of peace. This is his territory. He knows how to bring about peace. And so for those of you that are struggling with that divide in your soul where the enemy has hammered you on different mistakes you've made in the past, or the noise in your current circumstances back home are so loud that you've never really tasted peace. I want you to know that the great architect of peace is your personal savior, Jesus Christ. And if you give him your circumstances, he's far better than Woodrow Wilson in negotiating the terms. He actually brings about a true peace. You see, the devil can only broker a false peace. It's fake. He's a liar. He has no ability. He's not the arbiter of peace. He's not the architect of peace. He's the architect of confusion. That's his job description, if you will. But our God is the architect of peace. This is his domain, and he's very good at it. And so if we want to see peace brokered in our life, we need to come to Jesus Christ, not to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson means well, but he's up against the meddling William, and so are we. And I don't want you to go after peace in a human sense the way Wilson did but in a spiritual sense, the way a Christian does. A peace with victory. Not a peace with no victory, a peace with victory. A peace because of victory. Remember the cross. The sacrifice was not in vain. You know, the biggest deal for the Allies and for the Central Powers in this is they cannot say to their homeland and to their people that, yeah, we decided to have a peace and then everyone says, but what about the sacrifice of my children? What did we gain for it? Well, nothing, but we have peace. You see, that's a sacrifice that is in vain. But what Jesus is going to do is he is going to be a sacrifice that is not in vain. And it's going to be a peace that comes through a victory. And what Christ is going to accomplish is going to actually break apart a stalemate that we have with our God, but also that we have, in the, in the context of Ephesians, that we even have with the Jews, the fellow believers in the Messiah, that there is actually no more partition and barrier between us. And so in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, it says, for Jesus is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. There is an enmity that we have in our walk, in our relationship with God when we are in our firstborn condition that Jesus Christ has dealt with and has brought peace. And he has made us one with him in and through that faith in his work. But there also can be an enmity that we have with others in the body of Christ. And Jesus Christ has given us the remedy and he is the architect of a peace that brings a oneness to us as the body of Christ. But many of us continue to fight a battle with Wilsonian brilliance back and forth doctrinally instead of submitting to the work of Christ to bring one man together. And so then on the individual level, just with you and your foe, your enemy, that you need to recognize that your enemy is defeated and that God has worked a peace so that you actually can live triumphantly in your life and not need to stop in your forward progression when the enemy tries to broker a false peace that he has no business talking to you about. He's scared of your forward movement. Let's just get down to brass tacks. That's what he's concerned about. So if you ever get a little deal, a treaty that sort of slides across your desk, you could even sometimes be able to discern the tone of voice that is associated with it. Where the devil is so haughty, sort of like, yeah, I have you, and I'm so much more powerful than you, but I'd like to broker a peace. It's like, uh, you know, he tries to come to you as a dove, but he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I just used a whole bunch of different metaphors. We had dove, and we had a wolf, and we had a sheep's. He's a wolf in dove's clothing? How about that? And that is a false peace. Don't fall for it. Don't buy it. Father, I ask that you would make us bold to stand for you and that we would no longer be distracted by the skirmishes along our Mexican border. But Lord Jesus, we would utilize the strength, the time, the energy, the resources, the power that we have been entrusted by you and spend them in the direction of your calling upon our life. Lord, there's a lost and dying world and the church of Jesus Christ must be deployed Lord, I pray that you would equip us, remind us this morning, encourage us this morning to actually move forward instead of listen to the devil's ploy, his bait towards a false version of peace in this life. Lord Jesus, we don't want to sit on our thumbs. We don't want to seek comfort. We don't want to seek our own way of living. We want to seek your way. Lord Jesus, accomplish this in the name of Jesus. We ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.